We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by Taipei-based journalist Ralph Jennings. Hi, Gavin. Tonight we'll be discussing the Czech Senate president leading a 90-member delegation to Taiwan, the release of the National Taiwan University's coronavirus antibody testing report, plans to set up a representative office in southern France, a crackdown on Taobao, and some questions over letter combinations on licence plates. But we'll begin with Vice President William Lai and Premier Su Jung Chung playing a barb-loaded game of ping-pong this week with former President Ma Ying-jeou over cross-strait ties and national sovereignty. Ma made the opening serve on Saturday when he told attendees at a forum on security in the Taiwan Strait that the island was in danger of being caught in the middle of a power struggle between the United States and China and President Tsai Ing-wen is pushing Taiwan to the brink of war with Beijing. Ma also cited the government's rejecting of the 1992 consensus as being also part of the problem. Lai returned that serve, however, accusing Ma of creating divisions and fear, with his argument that the current administration is pushing Taiwan to the brink of war, and he said that such actions are worse than war. Lai also took a swipe at Ma's touting of the 1992 consensus as the path to peace, saying Ma needs to realise that Beijing interprets the consensus as being the same as its one-China principle. Ma's office responded to Lai, issuing a statement insisting that Ma's assessment was accurate, citing the Brussels-based international crisis groups listing of the Taiwan Strait in July as a region where the security situation is deteriorating. And Ma's office went on to call on the public to think about whether Taiwan's true situation was as good as the Tsai administration claims and what the impact would be if Taiwan were to absorb first strikes from China. Now, Premier Su Jingchang was not too happy about those statements and he told reporters on Wednesday that Ma has failed the public with his claims that the refusal to acknowledge the 1992 consensus is pushing the country to the brink of war and Su slammed Ma for failing to criticise China for conducting live fire drills this week in the Taiwan Strait and in the South China Sea. Now, while the war of words could be seen as Ma simply voicing his frustration with the government, some analysts say it's more likely aimed at his own KMT as Ma is seeking to assert his standing within the party as Chairman Johnny Jung is, of course, facing calls for reform within the KMT to boost its chances at the polls. So, Brian, obviously taking a swipe at the government, but other people saying, no, this is aimed at his own party. I think it's both, actually, because particularly the KMT has been leaving very heavily into this ideological message. Uh, Johnny Chang took office promising to rise above partisan mudslinging, but this has actually changed ever since the attempts by the KMT to block Chen Zhu's appointment as head of the control room. So this continues. Uh, Ma is also uh, exercising a great deal of power within the KMT, surprisingly for a former chair and a former president who usually will just step back into the background. And Ma is trying to continue to tout his uh, basic foreign policy that he had in place in his administration as a way to attack Tsai. And it's interesting that, that just currently there is a power vacuum in the KMT in which Ma can exercise such influence. Uh, Ma left office in a very uh, unpopular state of approval. And I don't expect his policies to actually really resonate with the Taiwanese public. He hasn't. He's offering basically the same thing as he did before, but he doesn't even need to pretend uh, that that uh, to hide his views or cause them in any way, because he is no longer in office. And he can directly say that well, the military would not do well in the event of a Chinese invasion. This is why Tsai is a dangerous cross-state provocateur and that kind of thing. There's at least a civility he had to cling to once when he was in office, and he no longer needs to do that. I tend to agree with that assessment. 
because Ma is not running for anything, because the perception, I think, among the Taiwanese at the moment is that there is no real crisis with China. There's a lot of little things. There's threats from the military that have been around for a number of years. Um, but I don't think that if you go out and talk to people that there's this sense that China's going to start a war anytime soon. Um, so what's Ma up to? Um, it must be something internal that he's looking for. Uh, the chair of the party is fairly new. It's supposed to be a reform. Ma perhaps wants to do something again. He could be on his way back into a campaign or to help somebody else's campaign or to assert himself as a as somebody who the party can, can look to as an elder for, for support. Um, but also it's interesting that the government has responded so vociferously to what Tima's comments, which would indicate that they still think he's a factor of some kind, that his voice does carry weight with somebody out there. So, Brian, what about Ralph's comments there about the, why the DPP responded? Mm, that's right. Um, I think that Ma has a number of different paths available to him currently. He can try to become a elderly statesman uh, over the party and preside over the KMT as a sort of uh, person that maybe doesn't hold an official position necessarily, but can exercise a great deal of uh, control over the party's messaging and whoever's in charge. Or he might actually be trying to directly benefit, let's say, a faction within the KMT that is loyal to him. Uh, Ma was perceived as the leader of the mainlander faction, the KMT, when he was in power. And it's kind of unclear what the alignment of powers in the KMT now is. However, it, it's expected that as a foreign president, he does command some following. What's also very interesting is that uh, young politicians within the KMT uh, were actually kicked out of the party when they called for reform after Ma's term. But then Ma was actually one of the people that proactively reached out to young politicians uh, to try to bring them back to the party, to to turn around this accusation that they sometimes face from deep blues in the party, that they were turncoats. And realizing that, that after, I think, the Sunfire movement, that the KMT really needs young people in the party. Otherwise, it just looks old, geriatric, and out of touch. So that's why he really took steps to groom younger politicians. And this is one of his initiatives. Uh, you know, for example, Xu Xiaoxing, the Taipei City Councilor, who's seen as one of the rising stars of the KMT, was originally driven out of the party, uh, or, or people tried to do that to her, after she called for a form, uh, starting an organization called the Grassroots Alliance. But then... Ma was one of actually took steps to bring her into the fold and eventually put her in the city council position, and now she's a voice in the party. Um, so I think I think it's it's really hard to say right now. So Ralph, do you, I mean, do you th- possibly think the DPP should have simply shaken their heads and not said anything after the Ma comments? If I were running the party, I probably would have done exactly that: just let it go or issue a very pro forma statement saying we don't need the ninety-two consensus, and it is as somebody quoted saying a moment ago that um, that um, it, it's equivalent to the one China policy. Just come out with a simple three-line comment from the, the uh, mainland affairs council, something like that, and just let it go with a big full stop. And then that would sort of imply that Ma doesn't have that much weight. Um, and you might also point out somehow, either from the party level or from the government, that Ma has said all these things before. There's really nothing new at stake, and there's nothing new being said. Yeah, it depends. I think the DPP, uh, perhaps one approach they could take is just to give him enough rope with which to hang himself, which is would be to just say nothing. Another attempt is just to actually respond in this way and to be quite strong on this. Um, I can see in a different political climate in which the KMT is stronger, uh, key officials such as William Lai or Su Jinshang might not actually be as uh, strong in their messaging attacking Ma. Um, sometimes they would just leave it to, let's say, younger, more uh, overtly pro-independence voices within the DPP or related parties, or to the usual kind of pro-independence groups who actually were calling for Ma to be persecuted for treason for his comments. Um, so it's interesting that they did decide to actually draw a line in the sand here. And I wonder if it actually 
also to turn around has to do with the fact that this administration wants to keep the kind of deep greens in the DPP happy that do want a stronger, more pro-dependence uh, message from from Tsai. And so in this way, it's a way by attacking Ma, but not actually having to articulate a particular message. That's one way to actually satisfy people within the DPP too. And so maybe Ma gave them a weird opening in this sense. I mean, Ralph, do you think that Ma could be sort of setting himself up to possibly become chairman of the KMT again? I wonder that. he When he was president, and I think he was um, chair also for much of that much of his term, if I recall right, he was casting casting himself as being, I don't want to say, well, what's the word, but above the party factions. He was an outsider, essentially. A lot of people didn't like him in the party, which allowed him to rise to the top and be you know, respected because he wasn't part of the, the the hardcore faction. So maybe he's looking at making another run for it. Um, if Mr. Jiang doesn't doesn't perform the way the party wants, or if something goes wrong in the next election cycle when Mr. Jiang would have to step down anyway, then they would need a new chairperson. Um, I think it's very possible. Uh, but if he does so, then he will intimate that he will do so first. Uh, Ma actually even previously suggested that he might pursue a third presidential term, which would be legally unprecedented and definitely require a constitutional interpretation, which would be to interpret the Constitution as saying that you can serve two terms, you can't serve a third term after th- uh, consecutive terms, but you could serve a third term after serving a period of two terms. So that would definitely require a constitutional interpretation, but he did try to hint at this before. Um, something as, as major as that, it didn't come to pass, obviously. So I think then with party chair, he would hint at it first, but he might be testing the waters. I think it is actually a little early to say. Moving on and Czech Senate President Milos Vistrasil will be leading a 90-member delegation to Taiwan this coming Sunday, August the 30th. Now the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has said that Vistrasil and the delegation will hold talks with President Tsai Ing-wen, Legislative Speaker Yoshi Kuen, Premier Su Jing Chung, Foreign Minister Joseph Wu, Health Minister Chen Shih-jong and other cabinet officials. They'll also attend an economic forum hosted by the American Institute in Taiwan in Taipei next week and the delegation will include representatives from the Czech Republic's political business, academic, research and cultural sectors. Now, Vistrasil will also speak in the Legislative UN's main chamber on September the 1st, after which he'll be conferred with a Medal of Honour for Parliamentary Diplomacy in recognition of his contribution to promoting relations between Taiwan and the Czech Republic. Now, 90 folks from Europe arriving in Taiwan and meeting with leaders and lawmakers has led to concerns about the coronavirus. After all, the Czech Republic, well, there are a lot of cases of the coronavirus now in the Czech Republic. But the Central Epidemic Command Centre says that strict coronavirus control measures will be in place when Vistrasil delivers his speech in the Legislative Union next Tuesday. Now a guide will be responsible for leading the delegation through the legislature and all stops and media points will be planned in advance. And apparently all the members of the Czech delegation will use designated elevators and bathrooms which will be disinfected after use. So Vistrasil coming to Taiwan. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when it was announced. It's now coming on Sunday, Brian. That's there That's we go. Right. He's going to talk to lawmakers and get a medal and meet with government officials. And this is more diplomatic signaling. It doesn't necessarily mean anything, I think, except for that. And that's probably precisely the purpose of it. Uh, This is a a very large diplomatic delegation with 90 people, larger than, for example, uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services Alex Azar of the U.S. visiting Taiwan with his delegation, and uh, former Japanese Prime Minister uh, Yoshio Mori visiting Taiwan on the auspices of mourning for Li Donghui. Um, And so this this is an attempt by the Czech Republic to try to signal stronger ties between uh, the Czech Republic and Taiwan, of course, as a way to uh, basically 
signal that they don't have interest in aligning with with China. But this is also uh, a move in Czech domestic politics, particularly because their current prime minister, uh, Miles Zeman, is is seen as more pro-China, and so this is, is an attempt by groups to criticize him on that basis. Um, previously, China has threatened uh, economic measures against Czech companies operating in China for stronger ties with with uh, Taiwan. But this actually led to backlash in a way that called for reinforcing ties between Taiwan and uh, the Czech Republic, and this includes cities to city ties between uh, Taipei and Prague in particular on the basis of city-based exchanges. Um, but it's it's more signaling, and I think it's a kind of interesting that we'll see all this disinfecting. They were planning on disinfecting the legislator three times uh, in three stages after the visit by the uh, Czech delegation. Well, a couple of things. One, the uh, parliamentary delegation, regardless of how large, does not represent the government of the country from which it comes. And I think people reading the news here should be should be made aware of that it doesn't signal that the Czech government is going to change its China policy. As Brian noted, the, the prime minister probably doesn't want to do that. So the fact that they come and give a speech, it probably helps their cause at home somehow to be seen as strong against China or against the the, the prime minister there. Uh, what it does for Taiwan, I think, is just another laurel in the foreign policy cap where we have with Azar's visit, the, uh, the Morty visit, now this one, and there could be others like it. Um, and Taiwan has hosted other legislative delegations from all kinds of countries, parts of other parts of Europe, and I think from Japan in the past. Individual U.S. Congress members have come here for, for their own visits, not in so many numbers at once. Um, but the, the result is the same. Taiwan holds it up as a laurel, say we're like, there are people around the world and other democratic countries that like us and they care and they're going to come out and support us for some reason, Some usually at a uh, sometimes at a political juncture that matters to Taiwan. So this is just another one of those things. It doesn't have, a, as far as I can tell, a, a, a sweeping, long-term, topable impact. But Brian, 90 members in the delegation, and of course, concern about coronavirus. This um, is 90 people. This that's is right. not 20 people, 10 people. This is 90 <laughs> people. I think that could cause some concern, and this is one of the issues in which uh, potentially if, let's say, someone from that delegation did have the coronavirus and they infected other people uh, under politicians, this would have large backlash on against the Tsai station. This would be something the KMT would seize on, claiming that Tsai is now interested in building diplomatic ties at the expense of public health in Taiwan. Um, particularly, this is, is, is it, it generally is a great concern. Actually, even when Azar visited, uh, there are reports of, of reporters spraying alcohol after he left because they were convinced that as someone that came from America, he would definitely have the coronavirus. And so I can imagine that there will be even more concern with a 90-member delegation, which is quite large, even if, if its itinerary is very carefully planned, uh, it will definitely come into contact with key government officials, which does perhaps expose them to the risk of uh, contracting COVID-19. That includes President Tsai and Su Chen Chang and William Lai and all these other people. And all the lawmakers. And all the lawmakers which, of the legislature that they meet. And so that that's also a potential sign of concern. Probably they'll be wearing masks and, and all that kind of thing, but uh, we'll, we'll really have to see. I mean, do you think this possibly could have been delayed, Ralph, because of the concerns about the coronavirus? When they said, we've got 90 people want to come, the government could have gone, or oh, can you whittle it down to about 15? They could have, but I think by hosting this delegation now, Taiwan can link it to the, the Japanese one and the Azar visit from the U.S. and anything else that's out there around the corner or in the recent past and just say this is a trend where this is, shows that Taiwan is getting uh, a shower of global attention. So if they were to delay it, it might look more isolated. And I'm not sure about what's going on in the Czech Republic, but it might be advantageous to the parliament there to do it now instead of some other time. 
Yeah, I think uh, the time mission definitely will paint this as a diplomatic breakthrough and as a pattern. You know, for example, a visit from the U.S., a visit from another Asian country, an East Asian country, and now a visit from a European country. And this also sets a model, I think, for future diplomatic visits from other countries that uh, diplomats or, or politicians that travel here can bypass the usual quarantine measures and meet with politicians. And uh, this can be a way to signal something regarding, let's say, that country's domestic China issues, uh, building ties with Taiwan to fight the coronavirus, uh, the claim to, that they're doing that, uh, staying together as democracies, or what have you. I think that this this really does open a path and create a model for future diplomatic visits, and particularly with global tension on Taiwan right now because of the COVID-19 pandemic and Taiwan's successful handling of it. This could be uh, successful. This definitely is something that the Thai administration really wants to push for. And staying with the coronavirus, the National Taiwan University's College of Public Health released the results of its controversial mass coronavirus antibody testing program in Zhanghua County on Thursday, where it found low rates of exposure to the virus among high-risk population groups. The results of the mass testing program are being seen as a, a significant validation of the Central Epidemic Command Center's efforts to control the disease. And Zhanghua Public Health Bureau Director Ye Yen Bo says the study tested for neutralizing antibodies that the body produces following exposure to the coronavirus and was intended to offer a picture of how prevalent the disease was during its peak here in Taiwan, which of course was in February and March. Researchers took samples from 4,841 subjects with a high risk of coronavirus exposure, including the contacts of confirmed cases and people in home quarantine after returning from abroad, as well as from healthcare workers and epidemic front prevention staff who were working on the front line, basically. Anyway, according to Yeh, neutralising antibodies were found in only four of the test subjects, equating to a positive rate of 8.3 per 10,000 people. And Yer is describing such a low rate of exposure in a high-risk population in Zhanghua as being extremely good news. Now, you might wonder why they picked Zhanghua. Well, of course, Zhanghua was the centre of Taiwan's coronavirus outbreak because a taxi driver, of course, did get it and he died. Now, the Zhanghua testing programme was initiated on June the 11th. Now, it initially met with controversy and was questioned by the Central Epidemic Command Centre. However, centre spokesman Zhuang Renshang actually attended and spoke at Thursday's event when the results were released. And while Zhuang acknowledged the controversy, he also thanked researchers for shedding more light on the actual prevalence of the virus here in Taiwan and also for validating the government's epidemic prevention measures. So, Brian, could have gone either way there. And, of course, I think, I don't know, I wouldn't like to say, but I possibly some people were hoping it did go the other way. Uh, that's right. I think the KMT would have really leveraged on it if it had come back with the test results as showing that there were strains, undetected uh, strains of COVID-19 circulating among the population. Uh, that was a concern. Uh, there was criticism of the side administration for not willing, being willing to move towards mass testing. And I think particularly it's a question of coordination between the central and local governments. Uh, for example, the Zhanghua County Commissioner, Wang Huimei of the KMT, was calling for testing of people under quarantine. Uh, and that's really mark a significant uh, change within the, the testing policy of the, the uh, Taiwanese government as a whole. And that would be interesting, too, because if that happened, then there would be different policies potentially being rolled out in different regions and towns and counties of Taiwan without having this kind of uniform uh, policy that one has seen for all of Taiwan currently. As it is now, that way, there's only one model being used in Taiwan. If there are flaws in that model, you can roll out changes that are then applied to all of Taiwan. And that would actually just that would mark kind of a, a, a split in that. And so then we would... Have, me dealing with different models of fighting COVID-19 from place to place to place, and that make uh, that might lead to difficulties at coordinating. Um, that would also lead to then 
uh, difficulties centralizing the distribution of information, which the Centers for Disease Control has been very good at doing, uh, having a press conference in which they're the source for all information on COVID-19. And there would be fears that this leads to disinformation. But then things did not work out that way. And now the people that were saying that you need mass testing, it's actually just kind of backfired in them. They, it looks like they've actually just kind of leveraged and really tried to attack the situation on an issue that turned out not to be an issue. Yeah, I think the key thing for this test is that if you go back over the past six months, um, Taiwan obviously did very well with quarantining people, with checking flights, and with contact tracing. And the only criticism you ever heard, if you heard any, was that they didn't do mass testing of, of people across the population. So this um, this test, this research done by by the NTU College, helps to close that gap. Like they, you can, the government or whoever's out there can point to that and say, well, they've actually done a certain measure of random testing as well which completes the whole picture. And as you mentioned, they didn't find much, so that would indicate that whatever was being done, at least in John Hua, back in February March, was effective in stopping the spread of the disease at that time. Right, Brian, do you think other county governments and city governments could call for the same thing? It's possible, but I think that now the wind is taken out of their sails. I think that the KMT, particularly the Pan Blue Camp, was always looking for issues on which to attack the Tsai administration because of the Tsai administration receiving a boost in its approval rating because of public approval of its handling of, of the coronavirus pandemic. But then this was the issue that on which they could attack the Tsai administration on, claiming that Tsai was afraid to lose, for example, the prestige that Taiwan had gained for um, it's the, being praised for its COVID-19 response, and that this was the reason why they were trying to avoid testing to keep the numbers down, to keep it artificially low. I mean, to be honest, them there are there are concerns that are quite valid about undetected strains of COVID-19 circulating through Taiwan. For example, the Panshu, the uh, vessel that traveled to Palau, and then there were all these settlers infected. Well, where did this uh, infection come from? It's thought actually now within Taiwan. But it's actually not counted as domestic spread uh, within the numbers. It's, it's, it's counted separately from domestic spread, imported cases, and so forth. The third category. So there has been a little bit of sleight of hand to keep the numbers low, to be honest. But uh, this didn't work out this time. The KMT has mostly tried to attack the time station on its uh, economic measures, the effect on the economy from COVID-19 measures. But now it really tried to thought it had another thing which to attack the time station on. It turned out it probably didn't. Yeah, I don't think there's much of a political angle. It could be that the government here has kept the numbers low by categorizing them in, a, in, a, in one way versus another. Although I think the, uh, the numbers from the ship, from the, from the naval ship, have been reported right alongside those from, from the community in Taiwan, usually in the same breath. I think they're listed together on the CECC website. So if the KMT wants to make something out of this, I, don't, I just don't know what they're going to do. I don't think there's anything there. You do hear, I think at this, at this moment, there are 10 local cases that don't have an, an obvious origin. So the government has acknowledged that. And they're trying to figure out what exactly happened and who they made contact with. So that does cause some concern. We saw the, the face mask rule come back earlier in the month, and I think eight different kinds of places like schools and night markets and things like that. So that would include, indicate that the government is still worried and um, as you're suggesting, they certainly don't want the numbers to go up because it would go against their, well, it would be a big epidemic problem here. And it would also go against the whole idea that they've done extremely well in handling it to date. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials.
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And the government was busy banding the word breakthrough again around this week after the foreign ministry announced that it will set up a representative office in southern France to foster mutual cooperation between, well, Taiwan and France. The office will be located in the university city of Aix-en-Provence, which is located some 30 kilometres north of Marseille. Premier Su Jingcheng lauded the opening of the representative office as a diplomatic breakthrough that highlights the government's effective diplomatic policies. While the head of the foreign ministry's office of European Affairs was being cited as saying Aix-en-Provence was chosen based on its geographical advantages. It's close to Montpellier, the Sophia Antropolis Science Park and Toulouse, if you want to know. Now, the foreign ministry says details concerning when the office will open have yet to be finalised because of the coronavirus pandemic, but when opened, it will be Taiwan's second office in France, following its main representative office, of course, which is in Paris. So, Ralph, Aix-en-Provence, nice place to be stationed if you work for the foreign office. But, I mean, it's more of a university town than one of France's larger metropolises, which could sort of counter any, you know, we've got a new representative office type of talk. I think this representative office fits in with a a broader trend that Taiwan has been hoping to reverse, which is that they had been asked to close representative offices in some countries that were loyal to China since 2016 when President Tsai took office. And that goes, of course, hand-in-hand with the absolute loss of diplomatic allies since that year as well. So if Taiwan can come back and say we've got a new office anywhere, then it shows that there's a, an uptick in this, you know, a tr- in this trend that has obviously been a sore spot over the last four years. Yeah, I think uh, particularly this is the time Institute is touting this as the third diplomatic office that it's opened recently, apart from one in Guam and then one in Somalia and now one in France. And so I think particularly because France is a large country, a large European country with a large economy, uh, the time Institute will tout this as, as a diplomatic breakthrough that this represents the strengthening of ties with France. Um, and this maybe is different than with Somalia, which is an unrecognized state, and with Guam, which is one of Taiwan's, which is which is quite small compared to France. And so uh, there's that. Um, the question for me is this: is it, is it routine? Is it just opening another representative office because France is geographically large and you need an office in southern France? Um, the other locations that were considered were Marseille and Lyon, but I think there was some negotiation there. Um, if it could just be something routine like that, just opening another representative office because there is an evident need for one, that the existing one is overwhelmed, but you will still tout it as a diplomatic breakthrough anyway. Uh, unfortunately, just it's very hard to tell from the outside what could have happened within French politics that would have led to the strengthening of ties with Taiwan in such a way to allow for uh, a representative office being opened, a new one, as being some kind of breakthrough or significant change. Um, it is Aix en Provence, Brian, is in fact known as a university city. That's right. Do you think that could have had some students, Taiwanese students studying France, could have had anything to do with it? It could be. I mean, it's a particular destination for a lot of, uh, I think, young students that are entranced by Europe and the history of uh, Paris, for example, or, or French culture. Um, and th- there are definitely a lot of students that travel due to Europe or do work-study programs and that kind of thing. So it could be that. Um, but it could also just be regional, I feel like, because the fact is Paris is more uh, located in northern France. But what about, I mean, could maybe the Thai administration have eyed Strasbourg for the representative office, which, of course, would have been a bit of a coup because, of course, the EU is based there some of the year. That's true. That definitely would have been the case, I think. But it probably would be too sensitive in that case. Um, I do think it does represent that, uh, particularly, for example, also with the the Czech Republic visit, that European countries now are interested in maybe signaling stronger ties with Taiwan. Uh, Tensions against China are are increasing because of the China trade war, the COVID-19 pandemic, and whatever. And so this actually does allow for more space for Taiwan to move. But I don't know if this represents a significant change per se. If this representative office will be near a technology center of some kind, then it makes a bit more sense to put it there because 
Taiwan and France have talked over this the last few years at the um, at least at, I think at the governmental level as well as at the industry level about doing more tech cooperation. France is trying to promote its tech industry. Taiwan obviously has all the hardware that anybody needs for that kind of a, a trend. So it, it, there could be a, a tie-in to that effort as well. But a nice posting, Brian. I mean, if you work for the Foreign Office, then where do you want to go? You've got Paris or Aix-en-Provence? Mm, that's true. I mean, it's nice to get out of Taiwan, perhaps, but traveling anywhere now is quite difficult during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and, of course, that is the point, because, of course, they've talked about it, they've mentioned it's going to open, but, of course, the coronavirus pandemic means we don't have a date yet. Much is the story with the Guam office, which I believe is now going to open in September, but we don't know because of the coronavirus pandemic. That's right, and so it's actually just an unusual time to open offices, but I think but maybe the side position really does want diplomatic achievements at present. It's already vowed that it won't lose any more allies, and it suggested it wants to increase the amount of allies Taiwan has. An intermediate step could just be opening new offices and saying this is a big achievement. And, of course, Ralph, we talked about the Guam office there. Of course, Taiwan had an office in Guam up to a few years ago, closed it down due to budgetary concerns, and it's now going to open a new office in Guam, which, of course, is U.S. territory. Sure. And this would be another U.S. office. They've got, I can't remember how many now, how many tickle offices are in the States, five, six, eight, something like that. And then this would be a logical one because Guam is the closest U.S. territory geographically to Taiwan. It's a big spot for tourists. For, uh, in a normal year, Taiwanese tourists, it's a good place for Americans to go for any kind of immigration visa processing if you have to be on U.S. soil to do it. Um, so, so it makes sense. And probably Guam is trying to boost up its profile, too, like everybody. They want more tourism. I mean, they want to steal people from Hawaii and other parts of the Pacific. So I think it makes sense on both sides. And there was some rather murky cross-strait-related business news this week as the Investment Commission declared the operator of e-commerce site Taobao Taiwan a Chinese investment and ordered the company to rectify the issue within six months. The operator is the UK-registered Cladder Venture Investment Group and the Investment Commission fined that group 410,000 NT for breaching local laws in regarding Chinese investment. Now, the Commission began investigating Taobao Taiwan after a former lawmaker alleged that it shared the same platform with Taobao Taobao, a website owned by Chinese e-commerce giant the Alibaba Group. And that allegation sparked privacy concerns and questions over whether Cladder Venture Investment was in fact a Chinese investment company, although it's still registered in the UK. Premier Su Jingcheng talked tough this week, defending moves to uphold and reinforce regulations governing Chinese investment in companies that seek to operate here in Taiwan. And he told reporters that the government will take action to stop Chinese companies seeking to either exploit or bypass rules and regulations in attempt to operate here. So, Ralph, Taobao being investigated. Of course, Taobao and Alibaba also being investigated in the United States these days. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. This investigation also fits into a broader picture. Uh, the, the, I think just last week, the, somebody in the government, one of the, one of the commissions or departments, has said they would be more wary of Chinese investments in general and, and when it comes to approving them. So when I saw the Alibaba, Taobao news this week, I, I thought this was perhaps a continuation, and I would expect to see more things like this. There is a fair amount of Chinese investment, direct and indirect, that um, started under under Joe's term when it was more a little bit easier to do it. And I think also that this later in the week, the government also said something to the effect of China cannot get one over us. Like in other words, these third party deals which may be the case uh, in Kabul, Taiwan, 
or any anything else like that where they're using a front company from another country to do it. Um, those are going to be uh, stepped on pretty hard, and the government's going to go after those, um, which is very, you know, in the end of the day, it's political. So it's just as it is in the U.S., um, China's the perceived enemy. So if it's from China, it could be there could be spying, there could be privacy prop- problems, there could be um, any, you know, infiltration of some kind. So the government here is going to try and stop it. So this has been perceived in line with the U.S. going after Chinese tech companies. Um, for example, previously the Thai, uh, Thai administration went after ITE, the Chinese over-the-top provider, uh, specifically moving to ban Taiwanese companies and individuals as acting as intermediaries for ITE to operate in Taiwan because it is denied the uh, permission, the landing rights to operate in Taiwan. Um, and so this is more of the same in that sense because Taobao is it's quite evidently owned by Alibaba. Alibaba has investments in the Cloudic uh, company, and this is a. I mean, you just look at the name; it's, it's definitely the same. Uh, it's the company, and so this is actually even targeting low-hanging fruit. I think in that way, going after a very obvious target with hopes of eventually having the space to maneuver to go after smaller targets. Um, and I think that particularly just within companies in general, I mean, oftentimes they are owned through shell companies for tax purposes uh, in order to hide who actually owns the company and that kind of thing. So it is it is something that just takes place normally. However, uh, particularly, it is political. The Times Nation is wanting to go after Chinese companies. And uh, the going after IT and now going after Taobao, this takes place at the same time as broader restrictions on Chinese investment. And so how far will that go is a, is a good question, but particularly the most visible examples now are targeting Chinese tech companies. I think particularly this is because of the fact that um, it is feared that Chinese tech companies could have means to uh, influence Taiwan, for example, through streaming, uh, provide soft power, uh, that Chinese uh, Chinese uh, companies that serve as shopping platforms could be taking the personal information of their Taiwanese customers and that kind of thing. Um, but also, it's it's a question then: Will actually there be backlash from the Taiwanese public? I mean, Ralph, I was going to say, what about the consumers? Should the government just simply let the consumers decide whether they want to give their information to a Chinese-owned company? They could. I think that some consumers know that know the Taobao name as being a derivative of Alibaba and Tmall, which are which originally started in China, they're still in China. And if they know that, then they would be a bit suspicious from the get-go. And you could leave it up to them or, you know, make sure that, or you could have the government advising them not to give out too much information, anything more than an email and a a, a payment method or something like that. Um, so I think that Taiwanese consumers also prefer to use other e-commerce sites Taobao Taiwan, I asked about it when I did a story earlier in the week, and Taobao wouldn't talk to me, and I couldn't get the analysts that I called to speculate or to evaluate how many customers they might have here. So um, I know that P- PC Home is the top, is the most um, heavily used e-commerce site in Taiwan, so it appears that um, people trust them a little bit more in Taobao. So obviously Brian Taobao refusing to talk to Ralph there. Do you think they they just didn't like Ralph, or do you think they've got something to hide? It's a question. It's hard to say. I mean, Alibaba is evidently very close to the uh, Chinese government, and there there probably would be concerns regarding that. But I think for a lot of Taiwanese consumers, they just go after what is cheaper. And sometimes it is actually going with Chinese uh, shopping sites, which sometimes are cheaper in price than their Taiwanese counterparts. And there's that, but there are privacy concerns there too. 
Um, so I think I think we'll have to see. The Simon industry really has not left it up to the market, though. They have actually wanted to take steps to restrict Chinese companies. In the case of, for example, uh, over-the-top providers, Chinese over-the-top providers, they could have also just allowed uh, Taiwanese companies to try to fight it out with them in the market and hope that the Taiwanese companies will come out on top. But then when it comes to this, Chinese companies at the end of the day usually have more resources and are larger, just by nature of the size of the Chinese economy versus the Taiwanese one. So I think that's not as likely. And I think that's why one sees this proactive action from the Tsai administration. And of course, Ralph, the Investment Commission finding Cladder Ventures 410,000 NT. Now it's called Cladder Venture Investment, which I'd, I'd, I'd take it 410,000 NT was like not a lot of money for them. Yeah, these fines never seem to amount to a whole lot if you figure it's a profitable and large business. And in a way, they're almost more symbolic than they are punitive or actually a, a loss to the company. Anyway, before we go this week, the Directorate General of Highways drew the ire of gay rights groups over its ban on the issuing of several letter combinations on vehicle licence plates, which the government deems to be sensitive or obscene. Now, the issue dates back to 2012, when the government added an extra letter to the then two-character licence plates to the increase in number of vehicles on the roads here in Taiwan. Now, the government then put 24 letter combinations on a blacklist due to concerns they were rather controversial. Now, the letter combinations included man Bad nun, sex, sly, bad, gay, ass, bum, bra, cry, cat, pup and an ape. And gay rights groups now say that enough is enough with the blacklist as it's time that the letter combination spelling words such as sex, bra and gay were no longer viewed in negative connotations. The Directorate General of Highways has said that it will review the matter after collecting more opinions about it from members of the public who might have a number plate that has something rude on it. So Brian, I mean if you had a number plate that said mad, none, sex, sly, bad, gay, <laughs> ass, bum, bra, cry, cat, pup, ant or ape, would you be offended or worry about offending other people? Not particularly. I think that Taiwan, particularly uh, claiming to be a pluralistic society, one that has legalized gay marriage and is open to a diversity of views regarding uh, many social issues, I think that this is very outmoded. I think this is time that uh, these kind of license plates restrictions should be undone. Um, some of them are actually just quite bizarre. It's it's quite hard to understand what's bad about having, let's say, a cat or ape on your license plate. And this has been pointed out actually by the uh, LGBTQ groups that are involved in, in pushing against this as well, that this is, is actually quite absurd. Um, it's humorous. It definitely is humorous. I mean, I think that Taiwan could actually see with more uh, vanity plates, just more amusing combinations of words, uh, clever wordplay on, on the streets. I think that'd be quite fun, actually. And Ralph, I mean, if you had a number plate called sex, would you be offended? I would be curious to know who's driving the car. Yeah, I just want to stop them and see who it is, um, especially if there's a BRA on, you know, coming off the same person. So I've always wondered in Taiwan whether the, the drivers, the car owners, have the right to choose, as I think you can in some some other places, uh, the numbers and letters that are on your plate. I see a lot of combinations that are um, acronyms for different organizations like ATF comes up a lot, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. And I doubt that anybody has any idea that's what it means. It's kind of a, you know, not, not, a, not a highly regarded government agency in the U.S. So um, there's a lot of other things that are probably off this list um, that could be equally eyebrow-raising. And if, um, obviously English is not the dominant language, but I think if you're going to drive around with it, um, most Taiwanese would go to the steps of finding out what it really means and what it could mean. Um, and uh, I think it's, I would leave it in their hands more than anybody else. 
Of course, Brian, the number plates, they do have, they do actually auction off number plates in Taiwan every year. And lots of those number plates are lucky, lucky combinations of letters and numbers. Letters, English language letters that sound, have a name, have a, have a sound in Chinese of a number. Oh, that's right. And sometimes the uh, connotations are different. For example, 666 is considered, let's say, auspicious here. And then it's considered the sign of the devil in, in Western cultures. Um, so there's, there's that too. I mean, it's cultural sensitivity. What, it, what is seen as offensive varies from culture to culture, but then I, I have no idea why ape is offensive. Uh, that also being said, I also see all these crazy night market shirts everywhere. And there are all these bizarre things that are actually quite offensive in English. And you just see them on night market shirts. And I live in Wanghua. It's full of many people that go around wearing them. They're usually quite elderly. And Nobody wants to regulate night market shirts, so I'm not sure why this is the case for vehicles. Can you give us an example of what you... Oh, it's a family show, bear that in mind. Oh. What you've seen <laughs> on a night market shirt in one while. I've seen a lot of profanity. I've seen a lot of profanity, and people just have not noticed. Um, a lot of the times, there's just very bizarre combinations of things, too. Um, strange cultural references or quotes that are just kind of taken out of contact or even have rammed profanity inserted between the, the, the regular text. And so it's, a, it's always a mystery to me where they come from. Some are probably produced in China. So I'm just Googling and just like, oh, this looks cool. I'll put on a shirt. And it's the shirt is being mass produced. So I, I guess it's that. So, Ralph, any, any profanity-loaded T-shirts you've seen recently? I've seen them. I see T-shirts and I see caps. Uh, I don't know where they come from. I suppose they could be from the night markets. I usually see people wearing them. And I've noticed in general that whether it's profane or not, um, people wearing these things tend not even to notice that there's words on them or what the never mind what the words mean it's just a nice combination of english letters uh, on a shirt that otherwise fits and looks nice and they just wear it so brian maybe the maybe the um, gay rights groups have a point and maybe if the directorate general of highways it doesn't take these words off the blacklist the gay rights groups could call the night market police <laughs> that's true why not i mean that'd, that'd be that'd be interesting Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here, here on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone by Ralph Jennings. Thanks, Gavin. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.